Welcome to BTI. It's in a new location. And for those of you who are not here for BTI, I am truly sorry. Uh, I am not Steve. And uh, it's going to be a little bit of a different experience. And sorry, we're getting a little bit of a late start. I decided last minute to throw the impossible on our IT team upstairs to see if we could get a PowerPoint going. And uh, that's just, uh, that is a more than we could bargain for at this hour, so sorry about that. But we are going to get started here with BTI here momentarily. And we are talking about today, make sure I'm all set here. There we go. All right. We are talking today about Christology. So uh, we are actually right in the middle of a lesson. So for those of you, again, who are not usually in BTI, I'm sorry to have you parachute right into the middle of Uh, a lecture on Christology, but then again, I'm not sorry, because Christology is a really good subject, and you should want to study Christology, because it's all about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and there's no better topic than that. Uh, Let me go ahead and start us off with a word of prayer, and then we will get going here with our lesson this morning. Father, thank you so much. You are a gracious and a kind God. And you have brought forth the conqueror, the hero of all creation, your son, Jesus Christ, who has made it his ambition and is part of your plan to rescue sinful human beings. And we are part of that. This is not just a story that's put into a movie format. It's not just a story they can read out of a book. This is real. This is how life really is. And this is your grand plan. And we thank you for that. And we marvel at it. And we pray, Father, that we would worship you all the more because of it. For you are worthy of our worship and our praise. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who are in BTI, uh, since we're not doing a PowerPoint, I don't think it's going to work. Since we're not going to do a PowerPoint today, um, you should have the PowerPoint sent to you in either a PDF format or even the PowerPoint itself. So if you don't have a laptop in front of you or a mobile device you could use to access that, um, you can always look at that later, I'm guessing. So sorry, you're going to have to fly a little bit blind today if you don't have the ability to do that. Some of you have your laptop. Some of you came prepared. So that's pretty cool. But what we're going to be talking about today, specifically two primary things, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. So what I'm trying to do right now is summarize our last two uh, steadfast conference topics all in one hour. So (laughs) that's basically what my my task is for today. And you know me, I, I don't have much to say, so I can get through things really fast. That's sarcastic. I can't. Um, so we'll see if we can even get through all of this today or not. But let, let's start into the deity of Christ, and let's, let's go there. The doctrine of the deity of Christ is not based upon just a couple of proof texts. Uh, there are those out there in heretical camps that will say that, and they just don't know what they're talking about. It's not just a p- couple of proof texts. In fact, the irony is it's actually quite the opposite for them. They are actually the ones that are using a lot of proof texts that don't really tie things together and explain it. Uh, In reality, it is woven into the fabric of the Bible, the deity of Christ. It is very much a part of the foundation of just the Bible itself. Now, a little caveat here. 
pre-existence. The pre-existence of Christ, obviously we believe in the pre-existence of Christ. That's part of what it means to be deity of sorts. But technically, pre-existence does not in and of itself prove deity. So don't try to just prove pre-existence because that doesn't go far enough. There was, back in early church history, what was called the Colossian heresy, which believed or purported that Jesus was pre-existent, right? He existed before the creation of the world, but he was still yet a created being. And we have actually modern heretical groups that believe that as well today. Um, the Arian heresy, this, this is another heresy. Sorry, we're going to talk about some heresies today, which is a bummer because you don't want to always talk about heresies. But the Arian heresy, which occurred around the 4th century A.D. Um, 300s, denied the eternality of Christ. And it is since the time of that Arian heresy that was denying the eternality of Christ, he had no beginning and no end, that pre-existence from that point forward started to get linked with deity. And so that's the reason why we sometimes equate the two, but they're not quite equated because you could still technically believe that Jesus was pre-existent and not actually believe that um, he is God. Now, let me talk about some divine names, some divine names related to Jesus Christ. And the first one is God. (laughs) So that's pretty straightforward when it comes to divinity to deity. And the most classic one that you know of is which one? John 1. One. There you go. Good. It's John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses try to make you into a, uh, a pretzel, trying to figure out all the little ins and outs and the details of that. But there's a very, there's a very simple solution to that uh, from a grammatical point of view, but it's a little bit outside of the scope of what we're going to be talking about. But basically, um, the fact that God in that verse prior to, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, that word God there has the the in front of it, right? Because the whole notion of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses is that, well, God doesn't have the in front of it at the end where it says, and he was God. It says, well, he was a God. Well, that's not how Greek works. It's not how Greek works. That's applying modern English Uh, grammatical rules to an ancient language that doesn't work that way. And there's actually evidence, plenty of evidence in the New Testament that you can actually point them to where it's like, we see there it actually has the article and you're actually calling Jesus that. Like when it calls him Lord in 1 Corinthians 4.4 and it uses the article the. So they don't really understand good grammatical rules when um, they make those claims. But the idea in John 1.1 is that God is has the the in front of it in the earlier part of the verse. And then later on in Greek, when you have that same word used later, and it's referring to the same individual, then that means that uh, the one that doesn't have the article is assuming the article from the previous one. Does that make sense? That's what, uh, that's how Greek works when it comes to the. And when I mean article, I mean the. That's in case that's unclear. Okay. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God at any time. This is in the same context. But the only God, the one and only God, you could translate it that way. You could say the only begotten God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
So it's actually calling Jesus the only begotten God or the one and only God. Either way you go with that, that's hard to reason outside of that. Now, if we were just proof texting things, we probably would just stop there or you know, give a few more. But there's a whole list of things we're going to go through, which is why we probably won't even finish this this morning. John 20, verse 28, Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And no, he's not swearing there. I don't know where that comes from. That is just ridiculous. Jesus actually doesn't get, him on, get on him for that. He accepts that, that naming um, that Thomas gives him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. What's interesting here is that um, some explanations are, well, it's actually supposed to be your throne is God. But that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, so the, again, they're trying to, you can hear the explaining away of a text. Whereas actually even further on in Hebrews 1, uh, 8 and 9, we actually see that, oh God, appear again. It may not be reflected in your translation, but it's actually a, a little bit more of a faithful rendering, I would argue. So even then it further supports this notion that we take this to understand your throne, oh God. Your throne, oh God. He's using it, what's called evocative form in, um, in grammar, which just means that you're saying somebody's name. Your throne, oh God, is forever and ever. 1 John 1, excuse me, 1 John 5, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This one, this one is the true God and eternal life. That's pretty clear. Yes? I'm glad you're agreeing with me. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Romans 9, verse 5, it conveys the fact that uh, in the context of talking about the Messiah, he is God-blessed forever. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, talks about the blessed hope from our only God and Savior. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, talks about our great God and Savior. So there are many ways in which just the term God explicitly is tied to Jesus. It's just directly tied to him. But there's so much more evidence than that, and we have a lot. And this is where you can start getting uh, the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon or whoever you're talking with into their own pretzel, like trying to figure this out, and they get all tied up, right? Because then it starts to get even deeper and go beyond just the superficial text of just, well, it just it has to say he's God, and they try to throw doubt on the fact that it says he's God. There's a lot more going on here. The word kurios is the word Lord in Greek, and it's the word that in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament is used for Yahweh, okay? Now, that's not a one-for-one one because the word kurios can go beyond Yahweh. It could mean just a, a master of a slave, or it could mean sometimes it's used in that vocative sense again where you're just calling someone sir, and that was a very respectful way of saying lord or mister or you know one who is higher than me kind of thing. But it is used to describe Yahweh or used as a term for Yahweh in the Old Testament Greek translation, which was a respectful way to avoid using the term Yahweh when translated into Greek. That by that point, they had really wanted to put a, um, a speciality on that, that name for God, Yahweh, and not say it. So they would translate it as 
Kurios, Lord. Which is funny when it comes to like Yahweh Lord and it says Yahweh Adonai in the Hebrew text. And they're like, how do we translate that? Because Adonai means Lord. And we're going to also say Yahweh is Lord. So then you know what they do? They just put Kurios, Kurios, Lord, Lord. (laughs) That's the way that they dealt with it, right? Because that was the only way that they really could. Uh, And so that's interesting. And so in your... uh, um, in your Old Testaments, it'll actually say like Lord God, but then it'll put like a footnote. I think like the NASB does this. The LSB might do this too. I don't know what the ESV does, but basically it'll put like Lord God, but what it really is translating is Yahweh Lord. That's what it's actually saying. Okay. But we see this used, I mean, the term kurios in the Old Testament in the Greek translations is used 6,000 times to refer to Yahweh. Wow, that's a lot. And we should expect that, obviously, because the term Yahweh occurs a lot in the Old Testament. But in terms of that, when you get to the New Testament, you have kurios used of Jesus a lot. Now you're like, well, maybe it's just sir. Maybe it's just master. But it's in contexts that are very divine-like and deity-like, where they're like one and the same with God. Luke chapter 2, verse 11, he's called Savior, Christ the Lord, uh, reflecting Isaiah's connection of the Savior being directly to God himself. Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, he's the, the Lord, Yahweh, son of David. John 20, verse 28, like Thomas said, my Lord and my God, he uses that kurios, and then he uses the theos, which is the God, so he uses both. Acts chapter 10, verse 36, he is Lord of all. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 2, he is Lord and Savior. There's that word Lord, and he's tied in with Savior again. Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he is both Lord and Christ. There's that kurios, Lord and Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus calls the Father Lord, which is interesting. So the Father is Lord, and Jesus is Lord. Interesting. Luke chapter 2, excuse me, Luke chapter 20, verse 37 the God of the patriarchs is Lord. Acts chapter 16, verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? You're starting to hear this very, it's not just like, well, you believe on the master Jesus Christ. That's not communicating the honor and the glory that is really inherent in these passages and in these contexts. Jesus is also called the Holy One. He's also called the Holy One. And it's used with a very specific article on the front, the Holy One. Not just you are a saint, or you are one of the saints, or you are one of the Holy Ones. He is the Holy One. Almost like you can hear it like Yahweh, the Holy One. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. Luke chapter 4, verse 34. The demons call him the Holy One. Even the demons call him the Holy One. John chapter 6, verse 69, the disciples, and Peter specifically, they call him the Holy One. Acts chapter 2, verse 27, chapter 3, verse 14, Peter calls him the Holy One. You will not allow your Holy One to seek corruption, referring to the Messiah. Acts chapter 13, verse 35, it's by Paul specifically where he calls him the Holy One. So that's another term. And on top of that, we have also the term the Son of God. And we could spend a lot of time on this one, but this would be familiar to the Jews from the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 2 talks about 
um, I, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. I should say that that's actually referring to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, which is the Davidic covenant. But um, this is where uh, he is the son who is sitting on the throne. And then in verse 12 of Psalm chapter 2, it says, kiss the son, referring to the son of God. He is my son. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, refers to a child that will be born to us. A son is given to us, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That might be an implicit one, because obviously a son, you can think about that from a human point of view as well, but it's also in the context of him with uh, deity qualities there and uh, deity names. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace. He was taken to mean equal with God when used of the Son of God. And this was not just by his proponents. We would expect, I guess, if it was just from his proponents, that maybe they got it wrong. Maybe they didn't understand their Old Testament really well. But it was actually like the Jewish leaders, like the best people of Israel that understood the Hebrew scriptures better than pretty much anybody. And so when, like in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then further on in John chapter 19, verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now you see how they use that term, the son of God? What are they inferring there? That he is what? God. If he was just like, well, it's just a son of God. We're all sons of God. You know, like it's not that big of a deal. Obviously, it was a huge deal, and they were all in agreement on this. Others ascribe sonship to Christ. God the Father calls him the Son in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, and chapter 9, verse 7. The demons call him the Son of God in Mark chapter 3, verse 11, Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. Note that they were compelled to acknowledge the Son of God's identity. I mean, they were compelled. Like, they're just making it really clear. And Jesus prevents them, not because it's not true, but because it is going to cause Israel to accept their Messiah for the wrong reasons up front. And they have to repent first before he can usher in the kingdom. And so he hides that those details about him because it's only to be available to those who are really hearing his message of repentance for Israel. It's important. That's a whole other topic we could talk about another time. But the angels call him the son. Luke chapter 1, verse 32, Gabriel calls him the son. Verse 35 also, when he's talking to Mary. John the Baptist calls him the son of God. And um, I believe this is actually, I don't have the, the note here, I just have a chapter 1, verse 34. Which one is that? Pretty sure that's John. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 34. Uh, the disciples call him the Son of God, Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, chapter 16, verse 16. Nathaniel calls him the Son in, in John chapter 1, verse 49. Martha calls him the Son in John chapter 11, verse 27. So you can hear just so many examples of him being called the Son of God. 
there are two expressions related to sonship. One is this term. It's a Greek term, monogenes, monogenes. Uh, you've got your Bibles there. Turn your Bibles over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is where this is referring to, uh, we read this earlier, or at least I, I quoted it earlier. Um, John chapter 1, verse 18. Again, in the context of the Word, the Word made flesh. The Word who was with God and the Word who is God. John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that one has explained him. There's this word here, monogenes here. That's the word that it's the Greek term for the only begotten. That's what that word is, the only begotten. Now, there's a lot of debate over the translation of this because it could be the one and only, um, the only begotten. Whatever side you land on that, not a big deal. It's not a heretical <laughs> thing to take one or the other. Okay, I believe the LSB takes the, the only begotten there. Um, I tend to line up with that, but if you go with the one and only, there's a lot of good reason for that as well. In either case, what we have here is this is a... Um, a unique identifier to the speciality of the Son related to God. That this is the one and only. Like, there is no one like him. And that uniqueness is, is uh, coming out of whichever side you end up going on this. There's another term, prototokos. That's a fun word to say. Prototokos, right? Try to say that ten times fast, right? Prototokos. It's the word firstborn. You, know, you can hear that word proto in the front there, proto, the firstborn, prototokos. And it's that term that you see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the what? The firstborn of all creation. Obviously, here we understand this not to mean like, oh, he was, crea- oh, he was created? No, right? Firstborn, which is used uh, prevalently in the Old Testament to describe the one who receives the firstborn rights, has all the authority and the rights, on top of that, it later on in that passage says that he is the firstborn from the dead. Well, that is in order. So he is the first one with the resurrected body of a new creation. So I would argue either way you go on that in Colossians 1 verse 15, even if you're saying, well, he was created first chronologically. Yeah, in the new creation, technically his body is the first one, right? The physical body. But even so, we have him in position and authority and priority as the firstborn. Just as Jacob really assumed the right of the firstborn over Esau, yeah? Like that's, uh, you can see that. Or even better example probably is Isaac over Ishmael, right? He's the firstborn. Hmm, Interesting. Even though Ishmael was born much earlier. Now, he's also called the son of man. This is a really fun one. I like this because um, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of mystery in the New Testament for a little while when it comes to the Son of Man, and as he reveals what this really means and what he's really tying into, it gets it gets really good. Because Son of Man, at the base level, just to be clear, Son of Man really involves his humanity. That's really what Son of Man is referring to, and that makes sense, right? Because you already have the Son of God as a name. The Son of Man is re- is really emphasizing his humanity. Now, if you just left it at that, you really uh, you really don't get to appreciate what's going on there. Uh, because, turn your Bibles over to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. 
this is so good. I wish I could just get permission to just stay right here the rest of the time. We could just talk about this, but that's okay. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13, probably familiar to you. I was looking in the visions of the night. That's actually the word for beholding. That's the the typical term you would say, like, I'm beholding a vision. I'm beholding in the vision of the night. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming up to the Ancient of Days. And he reached to the point where he he presented himself before him. Uh, there's that term, one like the son of man. But how far did he go? He reached as far as what? The ancient of days. Now, who can stand as a man before God? But there's more than this, because Jesus picks up on this. You don't need to turn there, but just hear what I read here. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus actually makes a direct reference to this when he speaks before the council, before his crucifixion. It says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, there's that term, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Now listen, he asked, are you the Son of God? Now this is going to seem weird because it seems like there's a disconnect because Jesus says to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man. You're like, what? You missed the point of the question. You're not answering the question directly, Jesus. No, Jesus understands that question perfectly. This is incredible. He says, I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of the power and coming on the what? The clouds of heaven. What does that sound like? Daniel 7. He's talking about Daniel 7. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Because it's like, well, yeah, but... Son of man, I can see now, you're like, okay, so maybe there's this implicit notion here in Daniel 7 that if you can reach the, the Most High, you can reach, reach the Ancient of Days, then you're the Son of God. And I think that that is there. I think that's exactly what it's saying. But there's more that I want to tie in here because the merging of the Son of Man and the Son of God, the coming together of those two things, happens in Daniel. It happens in Daniel. It actually happens for the first time in Daniel. That's really interesting. It's such an incredible theology. And Jesus is picking up on the, the logic from Daniel, not just Daniel 7, but from the logic of Daniel as a whole, that the Son of God and the Son of Man are actually one person. And the way that you can see that is if, you, if you're still in Daniel, you can go back a few chapters to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 25 we have these different visions or different stories, different situations taking place that are giving you a, uh, different snapshots of looking at the, the, this individual who's going to come on behalf of Israel and rule the nations. That's what Daniel's really about. And Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, I was seeing four men unbound, right, with their bonds loosened, walking about in the midst of the fire, and there was no harm to them. And the appearance of the fourth individual was like the what? Son of God. You see that term, the Son of God? 
This is really important because what we have is the theology of here is an individual like the Son of God. And then as we move through the story in Daniel and we see vision after vision take place, it becomes clear that this individual is someone who is actually a son of man who can attain to reach the son of, or the son of man who can attain to God. He can reach the Ancient of Days because he is the Son of God. Does that make sense? This is the tying of those two terms together. And Jesus understands that when he stands before the council. And he recognizes that when they said, are you the son of God? And he says, absolutely. And in fact, that's exactly what Daniel was prophesying. I am the son of man who is the son of God. And if you were reading Daniel carefully, you would understand that that's where it was leading you to. Okay. All right, more, more can be said on that. But let's move on to some divine attributes applied to Christ. Divine attributes. So it's not just naming that refers, that shows that Jesus is God, but also things that um, describe him, uh, attributes about him, qualities about him. Colossians chapter 2, it would, I would be remiss not to mention this passage. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Boy, you can't get much clearer than that. The whole fullness of deity. Wow, all of it. He's not just partially God. He's not just like a sub-God. He is fully God, fully divine. Don't try to water that down. I know no, no one here would do that, right? But that's what happens. Ah, it's got to be something else. What does whole and all mean? It means whole and all. You just can't get around that. There's nothing in the context that gets you away from that. Um, he is described with holiness. Now, obviously, we are called to be holy. So some of these first ones are not going to be like, you know, home run arguments just by themselves. But when you put it in the context of all the other ones, it'll make sense. He is called holy. We saw references to where he was called the holy one. He is the faithful and the true, like Revelation chapter 3 and 19 talk about. He is righteous. Again, we are called to be righteous, right? So again, not a home run argument for his deity, uh, but it, he is the righteous one, right? Uh, in First John chapter 2, verse 1, he's, he's re- referred to as the righteous one. In First John chapter 3, verse 16, he is marked by love, it describes that. And again, all these attributes can in some way or another be applied to humanity as well. But when put in the context of some of these other ones here, this gets um, very divine-like. Omnipresence, like Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How is that possible? Unless he has access to full omnipresence. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How do you hold all things together unless you're omnipresent? You have, an, uh, you have omnipresence as an attribute. John chapter 1, verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael's like, How did you know that about me? And he said, before you were under the, the tree, I saw you. <laughs> it's like, how did you see me? I, no one was there, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, because I'm omnipresent, all right? Omniscience, John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, implies this. 
that he knows what is in man. And so the idea is if he knows what's in man, then he knows everything. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. Uh, wow, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. Boy, that's, if you have to, in order to have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, doesn't it logically make sense you would have to know everything? Otherwise, you don't really know for sure if you have all of the wisdom and all the knowledge. Yes, right? Sovereignty, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It's not that God the Father is just subjecting these things to him. It actually says that he has the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Well, that's sovereignty. Self-existence, John chapter 5, verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Again, the, the idea there is that the life of the Father, if, you know, the Father has life, but obviously it's not like he came into life, like he came into being. It's that he always has lived. And this same life is equated with the Son, implying the fact that the Son also had no beginning he is self-existence. This is a special kind of life that we're talking about here. Immutability, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense if he's only human. That really doesn't make any sense, does it? He has something that goes beyond human. It is divine because he is immutable. All right, that's, those are divine attributes. How about some divine works that Christ does? Well, the first and foremost one that probably should stand out to us is that he is the creator, yes? <laughs> and it describes that quite often in the New Testament. He is also the sustainer. But in terms of the one who is the creator, l- listen to this. This is an interesting comparison, and I had not really made this connection until I saw this in the notes this morning, so I was like, oh, this is cool. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. Thus says Yahweh. Now, obviously, everyone in even heretical camps would agree Yahweh is referring to God alone. Yes, I think we can all agree with that. Yes. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Okay, that's God. Very good. I am Yahweh, who made all things. I made all things. Who, now listen to this, who alone. Hear that? I alone stretched out the heavens. I alone spread out the earth by myself. You hear that terminology? It's like really clear. So if anyone's ever going to claim, I created that, I created the world, right? He would be a liar unless he's who? God. So then you have Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the what? The world. Well, I thought God did this by himself. No. And this also throws out the notion that the angels were involved in creation, as though angels created things with God, which is what a lot of Jews believe, have to believe, when they say that let us make man in our image. That's the only way they have to explain that. But the problem is, is that you're claiming that the angels created man, partially, and that Isaiah chapter 24, verse 24, does not mean that Yahweh alone created alone. It's very important. 
He is the radiance of his glory, Hebrews 1.3 says, and the exact imprint of his nature. Wow, that is, that is some strong terminology to say. An exact, an exact likeness. Not just you're in a form that's kind of like, right? It's, this is the exact imprint. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, who has the power to do that? To uphold the universe by the word of his power. And that word is tying back to Genesis 1, which is really, really important. And I got into that a few weeks ago, so I don't want to belabor that point. Um, and by the way, we do have lectures online, so if you're, you know, you're not in BTI normally, you're like, I want to hear that. We do have lectures online. We record everything. I think even this lecture is being recorded, so we should be good. Um, and this is after making purification for sins in Hebrews 1.3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there is that terminology from Daniel 7 again, okay? He also forgives sin. And again, the whole notion is, who can forgive sin except God alone? At least from a holistic point of view. Obviously, we can offer forgiveness. But the idea that you have the authority to grant a full pardon from a full spiritual realm, that is a divine-like characteristic. Mark chapter 2, verse 5 and following talks about that story. Luke chapter 7, verse 37 refers to the fact that Jesus can forgive sin. And then chapter, um, sorry, uh, chapter 7, verse 44 as well. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Okay, so he can forgive sin. He bestows eternal life. It's another work that he does. He bestows eternal life. John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He receives and answers prayer. John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, how are you able to do it? You're just human. No, because he's God. Like, he actually can do it. He can actually accomplish it. He can raise the dead. John chapter 5, verse 21. And 20, uh, verse 28 and 29 refer to that. Obviously, the story with Lazarus in John 11 re- shows that very clearly. He is also the final judge of the world, like Acts chapter 10, verse 42 says, or Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Or, obviously, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 show that he is the one who is going to judge the dead who are raised for judgment. He also builds and heads up the church corporately, like Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 says, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, again, showing his preeminence over the church, showing the fact that he is the one that is able to accomplish this building of the church, and that is very divine-like. You would have to be literally sovereignly in control of everything in order to preserve the church, because there are all these outside forces that are what? Trying to destroy the church. So the only way that Jesus can protect his church is if he has power over all of those things. Yes? Okay. He's also the one who sends angels, Matthew chapter 13, verse 41. So, um, you know, unless you're basically saying like, well, he's the head of the angels, so I guess he can send angels. But again, that's, um, the point is, is obviously he has this authority. It says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom um, and they, yeah, they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. So he is the one that has the command over the angels. Uh, and that is a divine-like authority because we see how, even in Job, how God has authority over the angelic realm. So who else is this referring to if he's the one that has this authority as well? We don't see um, any indications that I know of of 
an angel sending other angels. I could be wrong on that, but I don't know if we even see that. Miracles of healing, raising the dead, nature, power over demons. He does all of these things. And what's really the kicker on this is that some of these things, he doesn't, really a lot of these things, almost all of them actually, he doesn't even pray or offer a prayer to God so that it will happen as the other prophets of the Old Testament had to do. Like when Elijah or Elisha raised someone from the dead, there is quite a dependency upon God in those stories. John chapter 21, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. How about some divine claims made by Christ? Well, he makes the claim that he has absolute authority over the law, specifically Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Yes, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, which shows what? I am the owner of this law. Well, I thought God was the owner of this law. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I've talked about this before, but one of the more implicit but very picturesque claims to deity is simply his posture on the, um, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's bizarre. I know it's like, what? How is that possible? Like, how does that relate to deity? But it says that he got up on a mountain and he sat down and then he opened up his mouth and he began to teach them. And the whole notion is that he got up on a mountain and there's this whole line of things where it's like Jesus's wilderness wandering reflects the 40 days, 40 nights, the 40 years of wilderness wandering for Israel. So it's stepping in those steps for Israel. And then chronologically, it moves forward to uh, I, I should, sorry, I should go backwards. Sorry. There was his baptism, right? The baptism demonstrating that he's fulfilling all righteousness, which means he's stepping into the shoes of Israel when they pass through the Red Sea. Very important. Then immediately the Spirit came upon him, just like the Spirit came upon Israel. He went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Israel's in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses also went on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So he's reflecting those things. And as you come later in the story and you see all this reflection, even his birth narratives are showing how he's walking in Israel's footsteps and that whole thing. When you finally come to uh, Matthew chapter 5, it says he got up on a mountain and then he begins to talk about the law and he begins to usurp authority over the law. And you're like, this is a lot like Mount Sinai. That is a huge implication of deity there huge. And then at the end of the sermon, they got it. They understood it because they said they were astonished at his words because he was speaking with authority. It doesn't mean that he had a really good preaching posture, right? That's not what it's referring to. It means they understood that he was speaking to them not like their scribes, it says. Their scribes would read from the law, and that's a good thing. They should read from the law because they're not God. They need to, like, well, the law says you need to do this, and that's what it says in the text here, so you should do it. Great, that's what the scribes should do. But they recognize that Jesus was not doing that. He says, you see, you've heard it was said to do this. Well, let me tell you what the real meaning of this is, and it's this. You need to do this. Why? Because I have the authority to do that. They recognize that Jesus was speaking very differently. He was speaking in the place of God. That's a huge uh, indication and claim to deity. He has absolute authority over the temple. It talks about Matthew chapter 12, verse 6. Over the Sabbath, Matthew chapter 12, verse 8. Oh, that's a a sermon I want to preach someday. That's going to be a great one. Um, Well, I would like to think it's a great one, but it's a great text, and I think that's just going to be, man, that's a phenomenal text to see how Jesus walks through that and explains how he is master and Lord of the Sabbath. He is... uh, He has absolute authority over the kingdom. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19 refers to that. 
He is the supreme object of saving faith. He is the one that we put all of our attention on, believe in Jesus Christ alone, yes? Not just believe in Jesus Christ, and there's other things you need to believe too. The Father has placed the Son perfectly, like as the, put your target squarely on the Son, and when you believe in the Son, you're believing in the Father, and it's like a one in interchange. Um, we see that, obviously, in Acts chapter 4. There's no name under heaven by which we must be saved. He is described as being together with the Father in John chapter 14, John chapter 17. Um, he is, again, the exclusive object of faith in John chapter 3, verse 36, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. You've got to believe in the Son, but the one who does not believe in the Son will not have life, right? There's just this very black and white, clear-cut distinction. He supersedes all relationships. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So he supersedes all relationships. He meets all needs, physical and spiritual. John chapter 7, verse 37. John chapter 14, verse 6. And the point is, is that when you put all these things together, if Jesus is not God, then these claims that he makes are absolutely ludicrous, right? He is a lunatic. This is that lunatic liar or lord concept, yes? He's absolutely a lunatic for claiming these things. It's absolutely ridiculous. And he should be completely rejected if he's not God. But the point is, is that no, he is God. So choose the Lord one of the three. Divine worship is applied to Christ, is commanded by the Father in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. Let all the angels of God worship him. Even the angels have to worship him. He's not just another angel. He is God. He's offered, uh, this, this uh, worship is offered by the heavenly host. We actually see that happening in Revelation chapter 5. We see that even uh, in Philippians chapter 2 by implication, or not really by implication, it's actually explicitly stated that um, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, he is accepted, um, his, the worship of Jesus is accepted by Jesus from the, from the disciples, Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew chapter 15, verse 25, from women who, after the resurrection, saw him and they worshiped him, they bowed down to him, Matthew chapter 28, verse 9, from uh, healing a blind man in John chapter 9, verse 38, ultimately all will worship him, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. That's incredible. That's incredible. Now, we see how he deserves that worship because obviously the case, I hopefully, is just being stacked up here. He is God, and that's why he deserves the worship. The point is, is that when people don't want to believe that Jesus is God, it's because they just don't want him to be worshiped. They don't want to worship him. This is why people have issue with the deity of Christ, because they do not want to worship Jesus, because honestly, they would be ashamed to do so, because he is not their God. Now, with the little time we have left here, the humanity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Don't think about it as, uh, this is not, and this is hard for us to conceive of. How is he, how can he be God and man at the same time? This is not God just in a body, okay? It's not really the way it is. Not God in a body or God in a man. It's really more like this. Jesus is God as a man. Make sense? Jesus is God as a man. It's not just, well, God kind of took over this corpse and now he's, you know, 
he's kind of man, but he's really just God, and he's just got this sheath over him. It's, no, it's like Jesus is God as a man. It's, he's man, like fully man, uh, inside and out, and yet God. That's hard for us to conceive of, and we'll talk a little bit about this with the time that we have left. But we have, let's just kind of prove the case here, for the fact for, for his humanity. Not as controversial today as it was back in the early church, but descriptions of the incarnation. We have the word who became flesh. He became flesh, John 1, 14. He came down from heaven, John 3, verse 13. He was sent into the world. So again, what these are implying is that he's actually in the world and it's actually a physical thing. It's not just kind of like a ghost-like person or something like that. Um, He was born, as Galatians 4, 4 says, or Romans chapter 1, verse 3 indicates that as well. He is in the likeness of sinful flesh. And every time we quote that, we have to qualify that and say, listen, this is not what that's not saying is that he was sinful. It's that he was in the likeness as though looking like those around him who are sinful, right? But that doesn't mean that he is sinful, but he's in the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8 verse 3. But what's really showing is that that really ties him to humanity. He is just as much human as everybody else. He's just not sinful. Uh, He partook of flesh and blood, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. And he is manifested in the flesh, like uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says. Uh, This is a favorite passage of mine. uh, um, The point here is called the self-humbling of God. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, we have here who, this is referring to Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, right? He's a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that form of God, sometimes people get hung up on that. Well, he's in the form of God, so he's not really equal to God. And I know I'm going back to deity a little bit here, but basically he he had the form of God because he is God as much as he was in the form of a slave. You see that in the text there. He's in the form of God, and then he's made in the form of a slave. And he was very much a slave because we understand that terminology from Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, where we see the servant theme, right? You know the servant theme? That's the same word for slave in Greek. That's the same thing. And so you have him being in the form of God in the sense that he's not just like in a form like God. He is actually is God. And he is uh, just as much as he was a slave and the servant of Yahweh. By the way, this word emptied himself, and uh, we, we've we've actually addressed this um, recently here. I believe that was even at the Steadfast Conference. But um, recognize the fact that that word emptied at its very base core, it's the same term that's actually used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when it says that if the resurrection doesn't happen, our faith is vain. We're not talking about emptying in terms of quantity. That's not what it's talking about. Like, oh, he, like he had to empty himself of deity. No, like he had to remove deity like a surgery right out of him. No, that's not what's happening. This is the idea of uh, recognition and importance, he made himself of nothing. You understand how that works, right? Because he put on humanity. He took on humanity. And by doing so, he made himself in his name of nothing. That's what emptied himself really means. He, um, and that's why I would actually translate it better. He made himself vain, of no repute. That's how you can get this idea of 
um, subtraction by addition, right? Subtraction by addition. It doesn't mean that he actually removed any deity from himself. It's that when you add something, you subtract that quality of reputability, okay? The virgin birth foretold in uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 uh, it, it communicates this very clearly. He is human. He comes from actually from a womb. It's uh, explicitly affirmed in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. And Dr. Trevor Cragen, a former professor at the seminary, the Master Seminary, he defines it this way. It's that miraculous act, this is the virgin birth, the miraculous act whereby Jesus Christ was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary with the result that the second person of the triune God was joined eternally to a real human body and nature. And by the way, that's in the PowerPoint. So um, if you need that, um, obviously you probably didn't write all that down. We have that in the PowerPoint for you to, to look for. Um, now, some evidence of his humanity. He had a human birth. It was a miraculous conception, but it was a normal pregnancy and a normal birth. Uh, he had normal human growth and development, like Luke chapter 2 talks about. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about that in chapter 4. He had human ancestry, and, and, and the writers of Scripture appealed to that quite often. He had human appearance, like Isaiah chapter 53 says, such a human appearance that no one even regarded anything special about him. There's nothing to look at him that was anything great. Um, he had human experiences. He had a human relationship to God. And he was dependent upon the Holy Spirit, which is interesting because the Spirit was given to him at his baptism, specifically. And I would argue, and this is hard because you kind of have to read between the lines here, I would argue that Jesus probably didn't have the Spirit upon him until his baptism. Um, He didn't really need the Spirit prior to that. But what the Spirit does, specifically when he comes upon Jesus, is not that he actually needs it as though, he or needs him, I should say. He doesn't need the Spirit to do all the things that he's doing, but rather he's walking in the footsteps of Israel before him. That's really important. This is why the Spirit comes upon him, and he's representing Israel for that. We see the Spirit upon him in his temptation, in his ministry, in Luke chapter 4, and uh, other passages as well. He'll also see that he has an exemplary prayer life before big decisions, before miracles that he performs. Not all miracles, but some of them. He also has a public prayer life as well as a private prayer life, short or long, sometimes all throughout the night, sometimes a quick prayer in front of others. He taught his disciples to pray, even how a kingdom citizen prays to God, He does that simply and dependently to God the Father. So there is humanity aspects that Jesus is recognizing. I am one of you, and I pray to the Father too. But there's also divine aspects too, right? We see both. And then, of course, we just talked about the title, the Son of Man, just communicates very clearly. He is man. Now, the challenge um, is how do we explain that Jesus is fully God and fully human? I mean, we can't fully give an explanation. I think that would satisfy everyone in this regard. Um, I would argue that you can express this as in terms of nature and a person. And basically, the idea is, is that Jesus is one person with two natures. He is one person with two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. God the Son came down and took on human attributes in addition to his divine attributes. And it's often called the hypostatic union when you put those two together, the, the, the divine and the human. That's the hypostatic union. It comes from this Greek word, uh, hypostasis, which is this idea of nature or um, this substance, something like that. That's the idea. And it means personal or 
um, substantial nature or actual being or essence, something like that. Um, The Son of God did not unite with a human person. It's not that idea. Again, it's not God in a man, but really God as a man. And there were many errors, and I'm not going to get into these right now, but in the early church that really, it was such a touchy issue because they would kind of go on one side or the other of this, but um, hopefully we've at least clarified it here a little bit. Um, And that is a lot. That's the deity and the humanity of Christ for Christology. All right. I don't have any time for questions. I'm sorry. We've got to get to our main service here in a moment, but let me pray for us and then we'll close. Father, thank you so much for what, what beautiful descriptions that we see in the Bible referring to your nature, the Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Christ. He is our King. He is our Lord, our Kurios, Yahweh himself. And he is the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Faithful and the True, the Morning Star, the Seed of David. Lord, we are so thankful for you. We are so thankful for all of these terms because it helps us to get different perspectives and um, pictures into who you are because you have called us to yourself because you have called us in love towards you. And Lord, we love you and we pray that we would love you more. We pray that we would worship you more. And may our worship this morning be a reflection of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.